This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing. Hello and welcome back to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. With just days to go till the meaningful vote, the government looks set to lose it by a humiliating margin. So what's next for Theresa May? I ask one of the Tory MPs opposing her deal, former Universities Minister Sam Jima. And over on the continent, France is buckling down for another weekend of riots from the Gilets Jaunes. So can Macron give them what they want? And what exactly do they want? And finally, we discuss whether Britain has become a country of show-offs. Over 100 Tory MPs have said that they will vote against May's Brexit deal. But no one quite knows what will happen if it really is voted down. Would we plummet towards a no deal? Or would we end up with Norway Plus or even a second referendum? James Forsyth and Katie Balls write about this impending political cliffhanger in this week's cover piece. James joins me now along with Sam Jima, who resigned last week as the government's universities minister in opposition to May's deal. So James, things are obviously moving very fast at the moment, but can you give us an assessment of where you think we've got to and whether you think the deal is looking likely to pass? At the moment, the deal does not look likely to pass. The numbers of people coming out against it are still growing. All of Number 10's kind of efforts to win people around, they're not, they're not bearing fruit. And I think part of the problem is that all trust is gone. So the, the value of a prime ministerial reassurance, it, it, that's a devalued currency right now. So the question is, if her deal loses, what happens next? And I think the challenge for Theresa May is that she's not managed to persuade anyone. Everyone thinks that if Theresa May's deal go down, they're more likely to get what they want, whether that be a second referendum or a no deal Brexit. I think in reality, if Theresa May's deal go down, the two most likely outcomes from there are either a kind of the softest possible Brexit, kind of so-called Norway Plus, where the UK would still be in the single market and a customs union with the EU, or a second referendum. And I think this is these are the two options that are going to be likely if Theresa May's deal is defeated, because I don't think there is the I don't think there is the numbers in Parliament for no deal. And I think ultimately when push comes to shove, I don't think Theresa May would do no deal. Sam, you resigned from your ministerial position last Friday. What what made you decide to do that? Yes, well, I resigned even though I voted Remain and many people have described Theresa May's deal as Remain flavoured. But actually looking at it objectively, I felt it's politically and practically undeliverable and risked the union. And for those reasons, I didn't feel that I could support the government, which means, which means you've got to give up your job. And it's, my job was a job I loved very much. But I think the deal has many problems. It is a deal in name only and nothing has been agreed. And we will have significantly less leverage to achieve what the prime minister thinks she would like to achieve, which is a unique and bespoke deal with the EU. And would you like to now see a second referendum? Well, I didn't want a referendum initially. I didn't set out wanting to overturn the result of the first referendum. But the situation in Parliament is that there is a blocking minority for every option available. Brexit is an issue that crosses party lines. So I think that the need to have another referendum in order to resolve deadlock is now increasingly likely. And there is significant first mover advantage in who calls for the referendum first. And I would like to see the Conservative Party not shut the door to it. And I understand that if there is a second referendum, 
you know, we might we could end up with the same result, but that is not a reason not to have it. I, I think the interesting thing about Sam's resignation letter was it made clear that one of the things he was very unhappy about was you know, how the EU had treated the UK and the way in which the EU had behaved during the negotiation made him think that it was it, it was foolish to rely on, on kind of EU good faith or best endeavours to help the UK out. And I, I mean, this is the kind of paradox of the position, which is in a referendum campaign, I think most people would not react to Sam's letter by thinking, well, we, we should go back in. I mean, most people would look at that saying, if that is the way they treat us, let's go, f- let's, let's, just yeah. get out. Let's get away from them. And I think this is this is going to be one of the challenges for Remain in this case, which is essentially saying, you, you will essentially be saying, look at the EU, look how obstructionist and unreasonable we are. Therefore, we must rejoin. I mean, that is that is that is not an easy political it, argument to make. Absolutely right. It's, it's not an easy political argument. I think the point I was trying to make and perhaps should have made more clearly is I think for a country our size um, with our ambitions and our place in the world, we're either all in where we have a seat at the table and we have a voice, a veto and a vote, or you're all out. But the middle ground where you are a rule taker instead of a rule maker creates lots of problems for us. And it doesn't matter whether it's a softish Brexit like the Theresa May deal or whether it's a Norway option. I think you all have a situation where the democratic deficit and the loss of sovereignty is just too much to bear for the British public. I think I think Sam is I don't I don't dispute Sam's point about being fully in or fully out. But I think actually in reality being fully in means joining the civil currency, means being part of all the other big political projects that are the main focus of the European Union now. You know, the, the, the main, it changed the, when we were in, we weren't. I mean, exactly. We weren't. And that's one of the reasons why eventually I think we had to leave, because it was not going to work for the UK in the long term. Again, you know, the, the UK was the UK was going to end up in a situation where it was part of a club whose primary priority and focus was maintaining their single currency, building the political structures around that that are necessary to make that succeed. We would have been an increasingly lonely and ignored member of the organisation. And that was that was the problem. That was one of the debates in the referendum campaign itself, which is where is the EU going and does the UK want to go there? I think that without the UK's presence, that process has been catalyzed. You look at how you look at the kind of political integration that is now being talked about by European leaders. And again the question becomes, you know, what does the UK want to do? And I think I think the one thing you can talk about Brexit is it took forty odd years for the UK to get as far into the EU as it did. I, I think there is nothing in wrong with a kind of gradualist argument that you're gonna not gonna leave it all in kind of one massive leap. But you know, you're gonna do this first, then that until ultimately you get to a very different location. Uh, I think that there, there is a lot of sense in that, but um, you've also got to answer, even in the gradualist argument, some of the issues that have been thrown up in the last two years. For example, the customs union, what do you do about Northern Ireland, EU citizens' rights, which has uh, been resolved somewhat. And uh, these were issues that were hardly discussed in the referendum campaign, but are issues that need to be resolved if you're going even if you're going to take James's gradualist approach. And I think there is still a lack of clarity from those who say yes, you can leave on those issues. I think if you had the clarity on those issues and it's the fact that it's not just a question of whether you can trade on WTO terms, but it's how do we do our 
big scientific collaborations. You know, what does it mean for our foreign policy? What does it mean for defence cooperation? All of that. I think you need to answer all of those questions to make the alternative case as compelling. So it's the, the, there is an issue on the, any new Remain argument, but there is also an issue on any revised Leave argument because we now know some of those questions. And you could say that the flaws in the Remain campaign was they were unable to point out all these issues that we are all having to grapple with today. One of the other problems with Theresa May and her deal is that lots of people are, there are two ways. This deal is absolutely doomed if people regard it as a referendum on how Theresa May has handled Brexit. It's very difficult to say that she's handled it well. The only hope for her deal, and the problem for her is that this isn't kicking in, is that people start thinking about, well, where do you go from here not where should you be at this point in the process. And that, I think, is the, the issue. I think the issue in terms of where do you go from here, even if I accept the premise of the gradualist approach to exiting, is leverage, that we will have very little leverage. And what we've seen so far in the first phase of the negotiations is the EU setting the timetable, the hurdles to clear, and also marking the homework at the end of it. And that is a process that really circumscribes your room for manoeuvre. Our domestic politics is fragile. We have a government that doesn't have a majority. We haven't made any decisions on the big issues. Against that backdrop, I struggle to see how we're going to extract any real political concessions from the EU, even in this gradualist approach. I mean, Sam, if you vote on Tuesday against May's deal, I mean, that obviously puts the Prime Minister in a very precarious position. I mean, do you think that's worth doing, even if it's very risky for the Tory party? Well, that's the um, that consideration caused me a lot of anxiety. I was the parliamentary private secretary to David Cameron. I know I've worked closely with the Prime Minister, therefore, and I know what, how difficult the job is. But for my generation of politicians, we will live with the consequences of this for years to come. It is a momentous vote, and I came to the conclusion that I should vote in the national interest, and then Parliament collectively, um, as well as the government, can work out what comes next. And Sam, do you think the risk is that if we have a second referendum, it will split Britain in a way that we haven't really ever seen before? Well, the country is divided, parliament is divided, families are divided. The sense that somehow a second referendum is going to cause those divisions, the reason why we can't make progress is because of the deep divisions that already exist in the country. I think it will be equally corrosive for our democracy and our politics to go down a path where we suggest to people that Brexit is done when it's far from done and that we're still having rules coming from uh, Brussels that people object to. We still haven't resolved any of the big issues. I think that would also be corrosive for our politics. So this is a an incredibly difficult issue and I think what we need to do is is not so much run away from second referendum if there has to be then so be it but it's actually more leveling with the public about what the real choices are and i think throughout the brexit process and what, what choices what choices would you like to see on on the ballot paper well i i i think there should definitely be an out option you know it's up to uh, those who want out to define what out is i think there should definitely be that and there should be an in option if the prime minister wants her deal to be on the ballot paper as well, then it should be considered. I think, But Parliament will decide this ultimately. I think where I am is that we shouldn't rule it out simply because we are worried about populism, because there is deadlock in Parliament. And James, I mean, what's at this point, what's the risk of Jeremy Corbyn getting in? 
I, I think there, there is, I think the risk of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister is is obviously very substantial and rising because the Tory party is is kind of ripping itself apart. It's very very hard to see how you pull everyone back together. You know, there is very little support in the Tory party for a second referendum, but I sometimes wonder, Harold Wilson famously said of the Labour Party, that the referendum was a lifeboat into which we all could clamber. And I wonder whether uh, a free question second referendum, because that, with no deal, Theresa May's deal, and remain on the ballot paper, might end up being, it, it's not a good option, but might end up being the least worst option from the point of view of the Tory party, because it would offer something to everyone. You know, Boris Johnson would have a chance to campaign for the kind of clean break that he says people voted for in 2016. Theresa May would have a chance to campaign for her deal, and people like Sam would have a chance to campaign to going back in. But it doesn't give me any thrill to say this, because a second referendum would, I think, in inherently be very toxic because if you are running the leave campaign your obvious slogan is you know we told them what to do and they wouldn't do it i think it would it would massively amplify a sense that the elite don't listen that there's a kind of arrogance and a condescension towards ordinary voters i think this is you know it would i i think you know if we all I don't think you could quite claim that the last campaign, twenty sixteen, was a great advert for plebiscites. I think this one is oh, no, this I one agree. is going to make you think. This one's going to make you look back, and that twenty sixteen is the kind of pinnacle of a kind of Lincoln Douglas debates of referendum campaigns. No, no, I, I I absolutely agree, and I'm also very aware that you know if you have a referendum, it's uh, quite risky, and I've, I think I've got to make it clear that when I say that you know there's a referendum, you know we should look at Remain, that it that doesn't thrill me you know I'm not a flag waving Europhile at all but certainly compared to what we're being given now it makes more sense to stay in that's kind of what my position is that compared to what's on the table it makes more sense to stay in. And Sam what do you think would happen if we then did vote remain I mean how how do you see that playing out? To be honest I think for the country to vote remain there would have to be a significant move from the EU on some of the issues that the country cares about. I don't think you can make the same Remain case that you made in 2016. To be honest, it's not something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but I'm just saying that it is a mechanism that could, as James has recognised, that could allow us to get out of the deadlock here and what campaigns are, what they say, and all of that is something that, these are things that can be resolved. But I think what Sam says is fascinating because Tony Blair's argument throughout has been to the EU. You know, look, you've made other countries vote again, but you've offered them some concession. You need to offer the UK some concession. I see absolutely no sign, evidence at all, that even if there was a second referendum of Remain on the ballot paper, that the European Union would suddenly come up and say, well, actually, look, here's this concession, here's that concession. The reason the country voted out in the first place is David Cameron went to renegotiate Britain's membership of the European Union and came back with a, the square root of zip. I mean, that is that is the problem. And that this is, I don't sense that. I think, you know, you could say there'd be a kind of honours even referendum if the EU turned around and said, ah, oh, you've got unique concerns about free movement. So we, we therefore offer you the following things to try and address those problems. I, I don't see any sense that that is what the EU is about to offer. We'll have to see. And uh, if the country were to vote, I mean, if the country were to vote overwhelmingly, for leave on WTO terms, then we have to do it. I'm not, again, as I said, I'm not one of these people who's trying to frustrate that, but I'm just saying we need a way out of where we are and there is no easy way out. And what, where I think we've ended up is a position where, because there are lots of bad options, we're being, we're being asked to vote for the worst of all worlds. And my position is, no, I'm not going to vote for that. And just finally, James, I mean, if her vote, do, if the deal does get through, 
then what happens is Brexit sort of done and dusted. Can we stop talking about it? Uh, no, no, we'll be talking about this for the rest of our lives. The, so if the vote goes through, which would, which would be a surprise, then you would get into a situation where she would then have to put the this agreement into law, which would be a long parliamentary process with lots of guerrilla ambushes along the way. Let's assume she does that. There would then be a negotiation of a second phase, essentially, an attempt to negotiate the trade deal. I, I think that after how this first half of the negotiation has been handled, I find it hard to believe that even if the vote goes through, it will not go through with the church bells ringing. There'll be a massive feeling of bias remorse afterwards. I suspect you would then have a new Conservative Prime Minister who would try and negotiate the second phase of the process. Where that phase ends up is very uncertain. The political declaration leaves all sorts of, you know, is very vague. It leaves all sorts of routes open. And so I think that that is, I don't think we could know where it would end up, but I think it would be likely to end up somewhere along the, the, the deal that Theresa May is clearly aiming for is a deal that basically ends free movement but stays as close as possible economically to Europe in all other respects. That, I think, is what she would do. I think in a Tory leadership contest, you would basically have a choice between someone advocating more of a Canada-style straight free trade deal and someone advocating something closer to an EEA-EFTA-style arrangement. I think that, that essentially, that Tory leadership contest would end up settling what the negotiating position of the government would be. Yeah, I think whatever, it's going to be go badly for us. Negotiations will go badly for us. And the reason why they'll go badly for us is exactly the reason why they've gone badly for us now, where we've turned up to Brussels asking for things that they just don't want to concede on and just timing us out each time. And at each stage of the negotiation process, we have to either walk or fold. But because we've had the clock ticking, we've ended up folding every step of the way. And I don't see how the political declaration changes that dynamic at all. Um, If you look at just very basic things like the timetable, we will lose all of 2019 because the EU has got elections. And at the end of 2019, you'd have a new commission, you'd have a new parliament, you'd have a new trade commissioner. So the first of our two initial transition years, nothing really happens. And then we go into the second year of that. And within six months, we've got to indicate whether we want the transition period extended or not and which they'll say yes to, but we'll pay billions of euros in return for the privilege. We're then looking at a situation where we're getting quite close to the next general election. We've got the Northern Ireland backstop, and they will extract massive concessions from us to deliver whatever we want. So I see, however this go, I see in all likelihood that we end up with some kind of off-the-shelf FTA dictated by the EU if, this, if the deal goes through. Thank you, Sam and James. Looking for a new podcast to add to the mix? Then why not join me, Katie Balls, for Women with Balls, the Spectator's latest podcast series. In it, I'll be sitting down with the trailblazers of today to talk about their career goals and what makes them tick. So far, we've had Emma Barnett, and that's now available. Later this month, I'll be speaking to Liz Truss, Chief Secretary to the Treasury, as well as a host of other names. I do hope you'll join me. And you'll find us on Spectator Radio. Over in France, they've got greater things to worry about than Brexit. For two weekends now, Paris and other cities have seen violent clashes between police and the Gilets Jaunes, the so-called Yellow Vest movement. They are raging against Macron and the establishment. In this week's magazine, Gavin Mortimer, the spectator's man in France, writes about just how popular the movement is. He joins me now, together with Sophie Pedder, a biographer of President Macron and the Economist's Paris chief. 
So Gavin, you talk in your piece about your friends who were caught up in the violence over the weekend. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what they experienced? Yes, they were up from Aviron in the uh, deep south of France and they went shopping near, not too far from Saint-Lazare on Saturday afternoon and found themselves trapped between approaching Gilets jaunes and a blockade of riot police, the CRS. And this, the CRS screamed at them to get out of the way and they scuffled off down a side street and retreated to, to their hotel where concerned staff ushered them inside, told them to go and stay in their room. And about half an hour later, as he described it, a mob came down the street smashing windows and singing revolutionary songs and tried, I think rather hard-heartedly, but nonetheless tried to force her way into the hotel, which had barricaded itself. And he said it was a, a, a deeply worrying couple of hours. So if you, who are the Gilets jaunes? Can you tell us a bit about them? Do they have a leader who's, who's organising them? Well, it's a movement that emerged on uh, via Facebook on online, and it emerged very, very fast. Uh, videos went viral, petitions were signed, and it enabled people to organise protests on sort of road junctions, roundabouts, motorway tolls, all all across France, very fast. And a lot of the protesters, you know, did not take part in the violence, which was really the scenes were very shocking. But a lot of the protesters are sitting, standing there, on manning roundabouts, sort of protesting, really about it started off against a rise in fuel tax so on on diesel in particular which people who live in rural areas and have to drive a long way to to work um, and who are living on modest incomes found that the rise in the this environmental tax was supposedly brought in in order to curb car use but these are people who have to use their cars for work and that rise in in the in the diesel price just pushed their pushed them over the edge but it's become much much broader than that now it's it's really become a, a sort of revolt against fiscal policy in France and it's become very personalised. It's become a, an anti-Macron protest. I mean, the French have obviously got a long history of protesting and rioting. Do you think these protests feel different to ones that we've seen before? I think the protests feel completely different. You know, in the past, we've seen uh, so many different sorts of revolts on the street. I mean, a lot of them are union-led. So if you go back to 1995, when Jacques Chirac was president and there was an attempt to reform pensions in France, there were the, the streets were paralysed, railways stopped working, and people were, you know, lives really kind of ground to a halt during those protests. But those were all organised by unions. And in a way, that made them very, you know, they were familiar. At least you, they sort of followed the codes of protest and you knew who you were dealing with. You could talk to union leaders and you could have sort of talks and, and discussions. But the problem with the Gilets jaunes is not just the, the level of violence. It's that, you know, they don't have anyone that is willing so far to go and talk to government. They don't want to have leaders in some ways. They have said, some of them have said, you know, we don't want anyone to speak for us. They have sort of spokesmen, but some of those spokesmen are seem to be uncomfortable in that role. And it makes it, it's this amorphous, structureless, leaderless nature of the Gilets jaunes, plus the violence, plus the public support that makes it, I think, the situation so vol volatile. And it also makes it so hard, so just to interrupt, it make, makes it hard for, for the government to, to come up with any coherent solution because you've got far left groups, you've got far right groups, you've got communists. And some of the, some of the, I took a walk around the centre of Paris on Sunday morning. You see the anarchy symbols on some buildings and then you saw the Cross of Lorraine, which is the French uh, patriotic symbol on other buildings. You've just got this, and they're demands that uh, are so contradictory and, and, and conflicting that really Macron must be at his wit's end how to deal with this. 
And how has Macron responded, Sophie? I mean, has he has he responded? Well, at the moment, he personally hasn't actually said anything. He's left it all to his prime minister, which is so, it's, it's quite typical in France to, for a president to do that. But I think there is a feeling now that he's got to he's got himself to speak because he is the president. It's a it's a real political crisis. It's absolutely right that it's it, very difficult to deal with these with the protests given the, the the variety of demands and some of those demands are you know n- nothing short of Macron has to resign. I mean it, it, the there are there are conflicting, they're competing, and some of them are are really extreme. Dissolution of the National Assembly, and, and abolition of the Senate. I mean, it's extraordinary the the sort of long list of of different demands. But I think at this point, Macron needs to speak. I think he needs to show that he is listening. You know, when you think back to his campaign in 2017, last year, during the um, when he created En Marche as a party from nothing, it was all about listening. It was all about campaigning on the ground. You know, going around knocking on doors, listening to people, what they felt about that was wrong with France and, and that, that, that was part of its identity as a movement but he seems to have lost that while he's been president and I think he needs to show that he is listening and that he's prepared to you know, change the way in which policy is communicated and even put together. Gavin, you also talk in your piece about Thatcher and the strikes that she had to deal with. Do you think that these are worse for Macron than they than the strikes were for Thatcher? Oh, yes, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any comparison between Thatcher, neither the minor straight nor the poll tax rats, to what uh, Macron is faced with today. Knowing that I was going to be speaking to you today, I've... Uh, been given a, a, a canvassing opinion from market traders, the lifeguard at my swimming pool, shop assistants. I reckon I've asked 12 people, what do you think of the gilets jaunes? Everyone supports them. It's extraordinary. I married into a large working class French family, mostly socialists, one or two National Front voters. I've asked them 100% support the gilets jaunes. And it's, I've never known anything like it. And it's, again, it's, it's, it's hard to compare it to 68 because that was predominantly left wing. And as we've already touched on, these, um, uh, this has brought together people from, from different political allegiances, from different parts of a country, uh, different classes. It's a huge challenge to Macron. And what, I mean, the, the people that you spoke to, what would they like to see the Gilets Jaunes achieve? Well, this is it. A, a, a better world. What does that mean? They're not really sure. And they just feel that they've been left behind and that they see this, this growing gap between those people who are doing very well out of the France today. And, and I think we should also broaden this. It's, I mean, I think there's a, th- a danger of contagion in, in the EU, that it will spread between those people, that, you know, the term are left behind us, and those who are doing very well. So I'm just, it's, it's just, the signs were here. Sophie alluded to the, uh, to the election in 2017. If you think that Macron won 20 million votes, Marine Le Pen just over 10, and 12 million people abstained predominantly young and unemployed and I think we're seeing that now I think they're just fed up but they're, they're, they they can't really articulate what they're fed up with and so if you just finally I mean how big a risk is this for Macron I mean do, do you think there's a chance he might not survive this crisis I mean it's an it's it's 
very serious indeed. It's a real political crisis. I think there's a loss of faith in politics, but beyond politics, beyond parties, I mean, in it's it's institutions themselves. You hear people. If you, when I was talking to Gilles Jaune, uh, protesters in southern Normandy, they were saying that you know they want a new national assembly elections because this parliament doesn't represent the people. Well, it's you know once you start saying that eighteen months after there's been an election, in order to elect precisely those members of the national assembly, it gives you a sense of how much people have uh, you know the faith and the trust in institutions has eroded. And as 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 has just been mentioned, this is not just a French phenomenon. I think what you you know there is something that's reflected across the the west and about the nature of the sort of political governing classes and the institutions democratic institutions that have that have lost that kind of popular popular trust so yes macron it is very serious for him We'll see. I think in the next few weeks we'll see. You know whether he's going to manage. You know, manage. It's. I don't think at this point it's a question of his survival, but it's it's going to be absolutely decisive for his presidency. Thank you, Sophie and Gavin. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of the Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast, at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there from charlotte rampling to daniel dennett all the way past to michael morpurgo i very much hope you'll give us a try just search for spectator books on the itunes store and finally have brits forgotten the importance of humility harry mount editor of the oldie magazine writes in this week's magazine that we no longer appreciate or practice self-deprecation instead with the boom of social media or as he calls it show-off media Man and women, young and old, are all too happy to boast about themselves. Harry joins me now, together with Cosmo Landersman. So, Harry, you say in your piece that the British didn't used to boast that much, and now they do. What do you think has changed? I think the big change is social media, or show-off media, as I call it, and I do it as well, putting every single minor achievement you've ever done online. And there is a tiny bit of abuse, but actually there's much more of saying, as I say in my piece... God, your article about Paris Hilton's Chihuahua was fantastic. A little bit of you believes it. And I finally cracked last week. I was having dinner with an 80-year-old Scottish shipping tycoon who literally showed off for two and a half hours. I'm the best shipping tycoon in the world. I'm extremely attractive to young women. My poems are fantastic. And I suddenly thought, this has gone on long enough. And forever, tycoons have been showing off like that. But it's spread to younger people and to women too. And whatever happened to people asking questions? Cosmo, do you agree that we've become a nation of boasters? Absolutely. The English art of self-deprecation and modesty and restraint has completely died. When my parents moved to England from New York in 1964, they and most American observers couldn't believe the English, how wonderful it was to come to a society where that did not go on. My father once said, the difference between a New York and London is in New York, as soon as you go to a party, the first thing they ask you is, how much do you earn? Where, where is your status? And they check you out. He said, it's so great in England. People will never talk about that sort of stuff. Now, however, years later, it's become the norm. We've completely become Americanized. And that behavior that was frowned upon one time is, is, is the norm. And people that object, they're the weird ones now. It's people like Harry yeah. or the odd ones out. That's what's, what's, what's really changed. Shy, diffident people like us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think journalists are particularly prone to boasting? Well, they are in their pieces. So when you very kindly published this piece, I immediately put it on Facebook and Twitter this morning. That's part of the desperate bid for survival as a journalist. I think journalists have always been like actors and politicians 
musicians. They're a self-selecting group. They want to be famous. But at the same time, having said that, the best journalists are the best company because they ask questions. The terrible thing about they these have curiosity. show-offs... They do, yeah. It's, these show-offs, they say, I'm the best tycoon, or this friend of mine I no longer see says, whenever I see it, you know what, I'm bloody good at my job. And you... Don't say you're brilliant at something. I'm not going to think you're brilliant. If, you, if you're very funny like Cosmo, then I'll like you. Or if you say something highly intelligent, but actually just saying, I am funny, I am intelligent, but I'm Harry, good at my job, you don't believe it, you just think they're boring. Don't you think there has been change? Because the journalists in my day as a young journalist, we, we didn't go on about our pieces. We hoped everyone would notice. But the idea of going on Facebook and saying, here's my latest piece, how many likes can I get? That we yeah, you're right, that We would have changed. never done that. It would have been embarrassing. There used to be and the convention, you'll remember, Cosmo, you go into your newspaper office and someone would say, good piece. They hadn't read it, but they said, it. good piece. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, you were yeah, happy with yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. But the yeah. idea that was, you announced to all your friends who had a piece in The Spectator or whatever, <laughs> you'd yeah. be laughed at people that you were insane. I find yeah. I, don't, I don't put my pieces on Facebook because most of my I friends don't either. just... Don't really want I've to read them, I don't think. Yeah, well, you're more <laughs> dignified. You're both more dignified than I am. But, you know, it's become second nature. I was just going to say, I think one of the interesting things about your subject is, and I think we have to own up here at The Spectator, on, is that, you know, what what is the cause of this change? And I think there are two things. There's the technological change of social media. And I think there was a cultural change. And it happened during the Thatcher years when enterprise, when competitiveness, when ambition and aspirations were no longer vulgar things that were considered good thing, the loads of money culture that happened then. That's when I think the cultural change happened. Now, there have been good bits to that change and there have been bad bits, but I think, you know, conservatives have got to own up to it. If you want a meritocratic society, that's the bit that you have to... That goes well, funny enough, I was going to bring up the meritocracy, which was famously invented by Spectator columnist Toby Young's father, Lord Young, mm. who wrote a book about meritocracy, coining the word. And he said, what will happen, he was so brilliantly prescient, is that when we think we live in a meritocracy, then those who are the richest and do the best will think they've mm. deserved it. They'll be more horrible to those beneath them. What he didn't say is they'll start to show off more. And actually still the elite is still largely mm. rich public schoolboys like myself, but they think mm. they deserve it. And so they start to show off. A friend of mine said a decade ago at the time of the banking crash, he said, will bankers now stop showing off now they've show, Now it's been shown that they destroyed the world? It hasn't stopped them because they're still just as rich. And that mm. self-deprecation that you talked about, Cosmo, is quite right it was often, as is called, the pride that apes humility. People saying, no, I'm really not so good yeah. at nuclear physics. But actually, it did mean they didn't show off so much and they asked questions. Well, yes, that's true. But what we say about the English losing their ability for self-deprecation and these things, you know, we have to point out which bit of English society. You know, I think what we're talking about is a kind of either aristocratic or a kind of upper middle class society where it was considered bad form to do these things. Now you could say, well, of course they, they had their status was obvious to everyone. They had their big houses. They had their, they didn't have to show off. They had the sense of entitlement. So, you know, and the idea that they began when the rise of this new industrious middle class were considered vulgar because they were, you know, men of ambition and they made it on their own, pulled themselves up and they were looked down upon. So a lot of that self-deprecation had a is double, very double edge. That's true. And it's, it's, it's also about Confidence, I finish off the piece by saying the truly talented don't show off. And that applied also to your Native America. I want, remember once when I was at a party in New York, I was talking to an elderly gentleman. He said, do you ever write, write any books? And I showed off for about 10 minutes. And I said, have you ever written a book? He said, well, well, I don't really write books. I did write a book called The 
whatever it's called, the Crooked Helix, whatever. And it turned out to be James Watson, one of the guys <laughs> of Watson and Crick, who discovered yeah. DNA. Now, he was taking modesty to a fault, but mm. there was a brilliant man who discovered DNA. No need to show off because he had this extraordinary discovery. But the other problem when you talk about talent, the talent factors, we don't really know what counts for talent anymore. It's the number of hits you get. It's the visibility. It's what you generate on social media. It's much more important whether you're at talent. Who cares about a good piece? Editors will say, how many hits did that piece get? Yeah, Isn't but you that know, a when, when you meet your heroes, and I'm sure you have, Cosmos, a journalist, we all get to meet our heroes. I'm here right I now met, with uh, <laughs> yeah, Exactly. I when I met Ronald Searle, the great cartoonist, just before he died seven years ago. He was incredibly modest. And you know he's brilliant because yeah. he does these different yeah. pictures, these brilliant pictures. Same if you meet a brilliant athlete. You know they're brilliant. They don't mm. have to say it. And it's almost always the people who aren't that brilliant who are bending your ears saying how terrific they are. That's true. Thank you, Cosmo and Harry. And that's all for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We always like to hear from you. And if you'd like more political coverage in the lead up to the vote, do tune in to our Coffee House Shots podcast, which features James Forsyth, Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. And do pick up this week's issue to read all of the pieces discussed, as well as an interview with Neil McGregor, Joan Collins's diary and Christopher Buckley on what it was like working with George Bush Sr. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. This podcast is sponsored by Merion Global Investors, bringing together the art and science of investing.